the Health Talk listeners, I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is a podcast where we tackle some of the best practices, challenges and trending topics across health and social care. This week we've got a special Christmas highlights episode. Since season two started, we've spoken to a whole host of industry experts and we've covered topics such as the new CQC framework, the impact of feedback, women's health, technology for the better and how changing the narrative can really empower your staff. So we've brought together a few of our key moments for you to enjoy. I think the annual survey is dead. Mm. The annual survey is dead for three reasons. Number one, CQC wants continuous feedback. So the feedback you got in January 2024 is not relevant, you know, six, seven, eight months. Secondly, I think the amount of stuff that feedback is required for, you got 34 quality statements. Some of those quality statements have two or three areas built into them. Unless you are going to create a 60, 75 question mm. questionnaire, you're not going to cover everything in that yeah. questionnaire. I think the third reason, I think people have less and less time. I was going to say time's a yeah. massive one, especially for staff. Totally. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've we've been kings of the annual survey for many years. One of the reasons why we kind of got so involved in the CQC world, we sat there and thought, oh my goodness, our business model is, is annihilated. Because <laughs> my goodness, feedback on the one hand is going right up in importance, but continuous feedback and the way that they want to see that feedback means we have to totally change our processes. And that's exactly what um, we've done. And so we now kind of do two, three, sometimes even quarterly mm-hmm. surveys because it's better to do several short things across the year than you know the annual survey, which isn't going to work from an evidence point of view, from a secrecy point of view, or from a volume point of view in terms yeah. of the amount of information you collect. I think for us in terms of capturing positive feedback, it was important to think about which modules we went live with first. So one of the first ones we went live with was was the module of reporting excellence. Um, and that was in March 22, so that we could get feedback um, about really excellent work that our staff would, were doing. It was also, I guess, a way to be able to make sure that actually staff logged into the system um, so that we sent it out via the notices uh, and and so that meant that staff uh, immediately uh, were engaging with um, the radar system. Um, we obviously also went live with you know the, the complaint feedback and the compliments as well, so we would have that. The, the that um, document that you were talking about, which was the the quality matters document, actually started life. Um, as as a radar staff update, and we actually, when we first implemented, um, had it out on a monthly basis. So we we now do it um, from August this year. Changed it to Quality Matters, so it's much broader. Picks up or, or allows us to to present not just radar information, but obviously the shared learning from our Surrey Heartlands um, prescribing to anything from Nice Guidance. So it allows us to look at quality in a much more rounded way. Since we've moved on to radar, we have moved hugely. So we started off, I think, with about 35 feedback the first month in March. We now have well over 700 um, a month for our feedback from patients. So, you know, the, the what that enables us to do is to share with our staff um, about what patients are saying, not just about our services, but they'll often say things about, you know, Joe Blogs, you know, is really great on the service. And then we can pick that out from the feedback and pass that on to the member of staff. So not just using the compliments, 
um, module that we've got, not just using the excellence uh, reporting excellence module, but also using the feedback that we get from patients where they actually physically name our staff. So I think it's been quite good for being able to feedback. Yeah, yeah, it's really helped improve morale because people are often too quick to to complain in the NHS. And, it, and and to, to get some positive feedback, particularly if, if people are individually named and to pass that on to say, actually, you are doing an amazing job, that people are really grateful, patients, relatives, everybody's delighted with the service that you've offered. Although everybody's really busy, you've managed to make a difference to that person. And we're getting that positive feedback, both from the home visiting team. It's, it's not just that the, the, the the um, staff, the GPs also love that, but the, the first contact physio, our acute illness clinics, lobotomy, all across the service. And I think that to be able to have that excellent, uh, so so we're getting that from the patients, but also for, for the staff to, if somebody's gone over and above in their job, done that little bit extra, helped out, to, to have that way of doing the excellence reporting as well, which, all, uh, which comes to each uh, governance meeting so that the rest of the team can see which members of staff have really gone over and above and, and performed well, I think is, is, is again really positive and really helping mor- with morale. We also have people HR for our, for our HR and on there there's a badge system as well. So again, people can highlight uh, senior exec team or, or, or management can highlight which staff have performed well and they can give them badges so it's any way that they can get the positive <laughs> feedback to say you're doing a really good job in a really a difficult time yes. in the NHS, I think is is, is really That's useful. What we're trying to put a big focus on at the moment is is training and really equipping our team. So we've got, you know, we've got a fantastic product training team in place and some fantastic e-learning and, and things like that. But what we've kind of noticed, again, opportunities for improvement is we want to really equip and invest in our people to be experts in um, in our product in the, our customers, in our industry, in our company, in our processes. Um, yeah, we want to really, really support with that. So that's something that's a big focus at the moment. But aside from that as well is just continually, you know, we invest in our people to do their external training as well. So everybody gets a budget of £1,000 per year to go and spend and, you know, there's certain parameters around it in terms of we do need it to be kind of specific to your role or your goals. But apart outside of that, it's very employee led. So we want to see what people are passionate about. You know, we're going to get the most out of them for investing in them to to further that skill and to further skills that are going to help with their career progression. Um, but yeah, I think we are we're an agile business, and yes, we're getting bigger. Um, and we're getting more processes in place and all the great things that come with that. But we are an agile business and we have to make sure that we're allowing our fle- our employees the flexibility to adapt and to, to grow with the business and to, um, yeah, and to keep keep changing. So I think that's that's really important for our customers as well from that point of view, because actually, you know, you think about great place to wear being certified and um, actually by investing in our employees and um, by making them the best that, you know, the best they can be with their job, then our customers are going to get the best mm-hmm. service they can possibly get. And also like our partnerships as well. So, yeah. you know, people that we work with, um, you know, that actually they know they're working with a company that really invest in this sort of yeah. training and, and whatever else it might be. But it, I think it has a really positive impact on that side of things as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it kind of ties into what we're always trying to achieve here internally and externally at Radar Healthcare is we really want to live our values. And, you know, we are we a customer-focused um, business and we want to make sure that 
the like from my point of view the interactions we have internally and I know that anybody joining this business is going to have a good employee experience as long as we're doing all the things we need to do and we're working together to get there and we want that for our customers as well and just yeah having being able to um yeah be as as knowledgeable as passionate um investing in our people to have all of that to hand is only going to impact positively impact everyone they come into contact with so we are really proud of our culture here internally at radar healthcare and like I say, we ask for a lot of feedback internally and it's something that people, um, yeah, they once a lot of our team members, once they've joined, they don't want to leave because they do feel a sense of belonging. They love who they work with. We've got really great teams across the business. Um, but sometimes it's hard to showcase that externally. So I think any job seeker, anyone that's looking for the next role, you d- it's just kind of the nature of the beast. You have to take a bit of a risk. You can't always lift the lid on a culture. And, you know, you, sometimes you, you get the feel from the recruitment process, from what you see online, from, you know, maybe speaking to other employees, but you've got to take that risk and join. And I think anything that can strengthen, you know, that we can portray that message that we get a lot internally, externally, and like I say, from employees, not from me who's like trying to recruit or the line <laughs> managers or whoever it might be it just really helps with kind of our recruitment and retention you know we want to keep our amazing people and we want them to feel proud to work um where they work but also when we do look to grow in the future we want to be able to bring in the best people to join us on this as well and not only that we also we ask for a lot of feedback internally so we do two big surveys per year um where we ask for really in-depth feedback and we also do monthly pulse surveys so we're asking kind of really quick fire like feedback so we can be agile and um respond quickly to things that might arise give people that constant opportunity to give the feedback but the good thing about doing it with great place to work externally as well is that we've also been able to benchmark against other similar organizations so organizations of our size organizations in our industry um and to see kind of on each individual section where we sit you know where are we above average where are we average where are we below average that you know compared to just all the businesses, but also those top 100 as well, um, which is really, really good insight, I think, for us to, again, keep improving. Yeah, definitely. And culture is so important now as well. You know, when you, you know, when people are looking for new roles and yeah. things like that, it's it's one of, the, I think, the top things that people look for because yeah. actually being happy at work and, you know, sort of all working together towards the goals and stuff like that is actually, it's really important to people and it's quite fulfilling, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think I said this actually in the last um podcast the last is if I do them all the time (laughs) my one and only podcast but yeah it was very based on culture of course um and yeah I strongly believe that we are we're we're all humans before we're employees so we're parents or we're sons or daughters or we're sisters or brothers or we're friends or you know carers we've got loads of stuff going on outside of work but the nature of how society is set up is we all spend a lot of time at work and it's so important. I've seen, and I'm probably you have and probably the listeners have, I've seen friends or family completely change in like their just enjoyment of life, their mental health levels, their well-being, because of a and it's not a bad salary, it's not a bad job, like the role, it's the culture or it's the manager or it's the environment they're in. And it's so important that, yeah, as an employer, we get that right because otherwise you know, without our people, we don't have, we don't have 
radar healthcare like it's we're very people first and we, we've just literally touched on culture a tiny bit there um and obviously something a bit special has happened at radar healthcare recently yeah. so we've been um great place to work certified and not only that we've also been great place to work to certified especially for tech um which is an absolutely fantastic achievement for for everyone in the business so what was involved in this process and and how did it come about so yeah, um, really, really pleased and something there yeah, we want to shout from the rooftops. Um, so yeah, so we um, are certified as a great place to work, but yeah, we've placed essentially out all the other businesses that are also certified, we've placed in the top 100 workplaces in tech in the UK, which is just an amazing, amazing thing to be able to share and to, to celebrate um, internally and externally. Um, but it was very much... Um, the so in order to be certified so it's basically the way that it's the way that it works is it's done via a survey so it's not an award entry from us as the company it's nothing kind of from senior management that kind of thing although they were also included um our accreditation is based on feedback from our teams so it's completely anonymous survey it's a trust index survey so it's a really kind of clever algorithm they use to to pick out all the key themes um and yeah it's completely based on feedback from our people which makes it even more special because it's not kind of us playing lip service you know any company can say we're a great place to work but to hear that from our people is amazing and then yeah for it to um for us to then because not everybody that does the survey gets certified. You've got to reach a certain level of participation, a certain level of um, like a, a score result, of course. Um, but then to go on further than that and to benchmark in those top 100 companies from the small and the medium categories is just, yeah, just, I'm just really pleased. And it's, um, like I say, we, we knew it internally <laughs> in terms of we're all really proud and we really celebrate our culture. But to have that feedback and to have the, you know, the means to be able to talk about it externally is brilliant. I think it's really nice as well, because obviously, like you just said, it's down to actually everybody across the business yeah. that took part in in the survey. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, it's their input that has actually achieved this. Like you yeah. said, you know, there's a lot of things that happen like this that may be down to senior management or, or other bits and pieces. But actually to know that everybody that works at Radar Healthcare has had an input into achieving this yeah. is it's even nicer, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And it's not something, I mean, they're obviously very strict with the rules, not that we would have ever done that, but you know, there's no incentivization to say nice things. There's no punishment if you don't. It's completely, um, and we try to encourage that a lot internally anyway, in terms of anonymous feedback and people being really open and honest and, and giving us the feedback so we can continually improve. And so, yeah, to know that people have come forward and off their own back, said what they've said and you know that you know it's not all positive of course and to be totally transparent about that we've got areas for improvement as every business does um but to me that makes it even more um special that people also feel they're in an environment where they can give that feedback for improvement as well and even despite all of that yeah we've we've got a really great score um yeah so really pleased (laughs) working in healthcare you know we see people that are passionate every day um, in in healthcare and how much people genuinely do want to make a difference. You know, we've we've talked on the podcast numerous times before about, you know, carers and it being a vocation and they're doing it because they genuinely want to go and care for for people. Um, So I think as well, kind of having that, what's so lovely about this is, and the things we've chatted about today is that as much as we see it in healthcare, 
this is applicable to any business mm-hmm. in any sector um, yeah. and anyone can kind of start and put these little things in place that could make a really big difference for the people that work for them yeah. and with them. Yeah. And I just think it's one of the most important things to get right. I know I would say that, because it's, <laughs> but it is like if you could have the best product in the world, you could have the best hospital in the world, the most lovely, modern, you know, but if if you haven't got the people there, then you don't have, yeah, yeah. I think every culture should be people first, but I'd probably be in the wrong job if I, <laughs> if I didn't think that, so, but yeah. So from a cultural point of view, because that's quite a progressive culture in terms of that approach, what have been the barriers in terms of embedding that culture, especially when you're doing it from a corporate standpoint to, into lots of individual organisations? Yeah, in I mean, I, I, th- I think it's it, it's just changing that narrative and that, you know, what was, you know, what was the previous culture? Um, and it's always a it's always a moving thing. It's always a living, breathing thing, culture. And it's, it's the difficulty is trying to get that living and breathing across 50 different hospitals and all the different corporate functions and make sure everyone's pulling in the right way when, you know, you've, you've got those local stresses and those local scenarios that maybe another hospital's not going, you know, not yeah. having and not experiencing that are then impacting upon that culture. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's, it's just to keep being consistent with the message that we give out around our, you know, philosophy and how how we want our people to be able to feel empowered. From a systems perspective and from a technology perspective, it's about um, giving them the tools where they, you know, they don't have to spend half an hour in front of a computer just to log an incident. Yeah. You know, I from time to time I'll 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 talk about nurses wanting to nurse. They don't want to be sat in front of a computer for half an hour trying to figure their way around the system and to do an audit or, or whatever it might be. So it's about giving them the technology, not just from a governance perspective, but just across the board so that they can feel like they can actually get out there on the front line. So every minute that they're spent in front of a computer is a minute that they're not spending with a patient. Yeah. And ultimately our nurses, you know, that's that's why they got into that profession. They want to be there. They want to be engaged with their patients ultimately our patients probably want us to be engaged with them as well because it has a knock-on effect not just from a patient safety perspective and you know p-serve and all of those sorts of things that are coming in but also the patient experience element to know that you know they've come to a an independent private hospital and they're getting that independent private you know feel and experience that you know that's what we want to stand aside that's what we want us you know we want to stand you know, out from the crowd, if you like, when it comes to that experience. So, yeah, our tools help us to do that, but our tools only help us to do that if they're set up right and, you know. Yeah. I think that's one of the key things. Certainly our product and dev teams are really focused on how do you make that front-end interaction as seamless as possible, as simple as possible, yeah. and as swift as possible for exactly that reason. So you're not spending hours just collecting data that nothing, you never often can see the output of it. You know, what's what's the point in collecting it as well? And- yeah, and I think having, having you know, gone, gone through the project now and having done that, I think there's there's been an element of playing that devil's advocate I think sometimes we can get very excited by the fact that a new new system's coming in. It's oh great, we can we can capture this and we can capture this. this and yeah. We can capture <laughs> this. 
And sometimes it's about playing devil's advocate and saying, okay, are you going to use that data? Yeah. If you're not going to use that data, then that's five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds that an individual has to spend in front of that computer. Yeah. And when you're then multiplying that by multiple incidents across multiple staff members, across 50-something hospitals, it will soon add up. So as I say, that sort of goes back to that nurses wanting to nurse element. And yeah. Yeah. So if we're not going to use the data for anything and we don't have any regulatory requirement to capture it then we should consider where whether we are capturing yeah. it we can always make a decision in the future about whether we capture it before you kind of had that tech that could change the mend what what did it used to be like and i don't i'm sorry that sounds really cheeky like <laughs> how no, we no, used no, to it's live not. But. so uh when i joined exemplar which is now um, it's, it has just been five years ago everything that we did was paper-based which was quite interesting to me because i'd just come out of booper and we just implemented datix uh, it had taken two years and I'd been sort of, for the care services group, been um, sort of leading that rollout and that training, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'd just left Bupa where I'd all of a sudden got this great system at my fingertips. And obviously, incident and complaint management is around reducing risk for, for, for any organisation. And so I left there having utopia and then... And then I, I came into Exemplar and we didn't have anything. Everything was paper-based. There was uh, governance processes. There was an incident framework. It was called Adver Adverse Event Reporting. So the processes were there, but everything was on a piece of paper. Everything was on a spreadsheet. Everything was manually inputted. Everything was themed and trend. So, you, you, you know, this big beast of paper and spreadsheets. And I was like, oh, Wow. Okay. <laughs> where, do I start? Where, where do I start? Well, um, obviously what I've started with was looking at what the biggest risks were for the organisation. And for me, I, I obviously wanted a Datix or a Radar. That, I just left that and that's what I wanted. However, I took the decision quite early on that actually one of our biggest risks was medication. So we implemented EMAR first. Um, and so it was very much uh, scoping out from a digital point of view what we wanted to do, and we um, uh, were very lucky to um, have a, a great guy, James, who is our uh, chief transformation officer. And so our digital our digital um, plan for the following five years, and we're, we're just about there, so I can update on that, but the, the digital plan was then mapped out. And so we started with EMAR, and we've been on the journey for five years where we are now at the point, and obviously Radar came in, as part of that in the last 18 months. But we are now at a point uh, where we're moving into looking at digital uh, care records and we will be using the Nourish system. We're just about to go into pilot in three services uh, in next week, actually. Uh, and uh, we will have everything on a, on a digital platform. So the, the journey has been massive. And in the middle of it, it was a pandemic and that did stall us a little bit. Um, because we would have liked to have been further down the road with re with electronic care records. We call it resistance to change, but what are the barriers to change? And what, in terms of the rollout of programmes you've done so far, what have you seen those being, aside from attrition? Yeah, attrition, I think sometimes it's a, it, it is around culture. It's around the culture of the people that, that are in the home and around their understanding. Um, and sometimes we have to work harder with some homes than others. Um, and that can be the dynamics of the staff team. Um, 
Also, we have some homes where you can understand that that's difficult because the type of people that we look after, so the challenges in those particular services, it, they've got to find the time. Then we've got to find time to train them, to introduce the system, et cetera, et cetera. When you work in a really particular uh, service that's really difficult from a challenging behaviour point of view, that's not always easy to be able to backfill shifts so that people can come off of their shift to be able to do the training. So I, I would say we've learned so much um, having implemented EMAR, then a digital auditing platform. We've got a health and safety platform. We've got an electronic road system. We're, we're not, we've moved forward. We now know the services that do this really well and we actually know the homes that we have to support further. Um, and to be fair, that landscape, landscape hasn't changed. So in, in four years of introducing systems, we, it, it's still the same homes that still, and, that, and that's, that's not particularly about their leadership, it's just about some of the challenges in the service, really. This theme is just coming out in everything you talk about, that it's not one size fits all, not for your service users, it's not for not. your staff, not for rollout. It's really understanding the differences and the nuances. Yeah, what we've also found is with any new technology that we're inputting that, you know, it's great that we have a digital platform for training and we do have to use that for various different sets of training. Um, but when we're introducing a new system, we have really found that actually going out face to face to the homes, we get much better buy in and you see it settle into the service so much better. People do want, you know, and I think COVID brought an awful lot of us having to do a lot of things digitally that actually now we're opened up and we can actually get to services and we can work with people um, to actually introduce the training and what the system's about and show them the system. It works far better than bringing them into a classroom or making them sit in front of a digital platform and having the training. It's funny that, isn't it? Because a kind of as a, a tech industry, everyone's really, my whole career has been wedded to this classroom type approach mm -hmm. to training, whether that's virtual or face-to-face. Um, -face. But actually, it, it's much more the practical side of people working, using their own kind of content and doing it's things It's having someone coaching go. them, I think, yeah. sometimes. So it's that, that coaching element. And that's certainly what we've used quite a lot of my clinical team to do whereby where we've got a home that's particularly struggling with the implementation of a new system, that actually some of um, my team will go out and actually coach them on an individual basis, coach the clinical nurse managers, coach the nurses, so that then we can do that cascade training. It is not as effective and accepted if we just sit people in front of the screen. Yeah. What kind of outcomes have you seen through your kind of digital journey so far that you're able to translate and show back to the homes, to the service users even? Well, we have far more data available to us. Um, and it's data that we've chosen to uh, trend and theme every four weeks. Um, and that helps us you know, improve the outcomes for people. So, for example, if I give you an example of one of them, so we now really capture unplanned hospital admissions, okay, which we used to catch them on a spreadsheet, but actually the level of detail, it wouldn't, it was not as rich as what you get within a system. Um, and actually, it's around looking at those unplanned hospital admissions. It's really important to our service users, as it is to any really, but actually having to go to hospital, the impact that that can have on a particular person can be quite catastrophic with some of the types of people that we support. So um, we 
particularly fixed on, uh, fixed on this particular outcome, so that we can try and avoid hospital admissions, which again, takes pressure off the system as well. Yeah. It takes pressure off the NHS and trying to work much more proactively with the GP practices um, to actually avoid un- unplanned hospital admissions because it, the impact and the outcomes for people can be really poor when people have to go to hospital and that's not, I'm saying that they don't get great care in the NHS, but actually it's not good for their mental health, sometimes it's not good for their physical health, they're not supported as they would be within the care home because of the staffing levels within the NHS. So that's just one area. So having all of this digital information has allowed us to really trend and theme lots of things that actually we can reduce and see better outcomes for people. I think continuing to speak out is the most important thing we can do. You know, we have seen how big an impact that's already had, particularly, I think, around menstrual health and the menopause. When I first started writing about these issues five, ten years ago, nobody was talking about these things. It was still such a taboo. You know, my mum never spoke to me about the menopause until I started writing about the menopause. And then, (laughs) you know, suddenly we were having these conversations that we'd never had before, you know. Um, So I think that is that is huge. And it has had we know it's already had an impact politically. We had the first ever women's health strategy published by the government last summer. That would not have happened without the power of patient advocacy and patient voices and people speaking up and saying we want this to be better so I think in terms of kind of keeping the momentum up that's that's the most important thing we can all do keep talking about these things keep educating our daughters our sons you know our partners even even our older relatives our friends you know people who perhaps aren't engaging in these conversations on social media in quite the same way just having these conversations and, and educating people and making it normal to talk about these things is is huge. I think the other thing that we can all do is to support the NHS, to, to continue demanding better from the government for the NHS. So whether that is supporting strikers, um, you know, decisions about who we vote for, perhaps. And, you know, looking at what we ask for from our political leaders um, in in terms of protecting the healthcare system that we all have and and know and love, because we are so lucky to have it in the UK. um, And it would be be devastating to lose it. Women kind of just think it's just them or suffer in silence a little bit. And I think when you see so many things out there that actually this has happened to hundreds you know thousands millions of of other women then it sort of does make you go all right okay that isn't just me that feels feels like that or felt like that so I think I think there probably is that optimism bit there that's definitely a good thing to take away from it yeah no absolutely and you know I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday a lot of the time you know I've been having these conversations for a few years now and a lot of the time it feels like you know, we're so socialized as women to not make a fuss, just be a good girl and get on with it and don't complain. And, you know, it feels like once one person is kind of brave enough to, you know, stick their head above the parapet and go, actually, this happened to me and it really wasn't okay and I'm not going to stand for it. 
the outpouring and this kind of avalanche of women opening up about their own experiences. And it's almost like they've been given permission to go, oh, God, yeah. And it's such a relief. And, you know, people are constantly coming up to me at events even and saying, this happened to me. Let me tell you about my experience. And, you know, I think that kind of catharsis is something that I really hope people can take away from the book as well. I think you know, we have a healthcare system essentially that throughout history has been built by men for men. And so the focus has been on the issues that affected men. You know, historically, doctors, researchers, scientists have been mostly men. And so, you know, conditions that mostly affect women have been neglected, have been ignored. I think there's also a bit of an element Um, And again, I talk about this a lot in the book in in lots of different areas where women's issues have been normalized. So there's this idea that periods are supposed to be painful. That's just what it's like. You you know, you just have to get used to that as a woman. And and, and that is a a really big thing. And it's something that we all internalize as well. You know, like I was saying with with that socialization, we kind of go, oh, well, my mum put up with it. And, you know, my grandmother put up with it. And so I just have to put up with it. I think that that is a really big thing. And the other thing that um, has been spoken about more, I think, in in the last few years is this idea that a lot of these issues that we're talking about, endometriosis is a a really good example, is considered a benign condition, right? It's not cancerous, it's not life-threatening. But, uh, and so as a result, it's it's not seen as a priority. It's not like, oh, well, we're not gonna save loads of people's lives by investing in research. It's not like cancer, it's, you know, it's not one of those big things that that people, um, you know, everyone is, is touched by someone who's been affected by cancer. Um, and, but, but actually the reality is, as you've said, is that these conditions are debilitating. They have a massive impact on people's quality of life. And even, you know, <laughs> even if, as a government or or as funders, you, you're not interested in people's quality of life. The economic impact is huge. Um, you know, in terms of 50% of the workforce are, are going through these types of issues. Um, so at the end of every episode, we ask everybody what their What the Health Tech moment is. Yeah. So this started when we first started the podcast. Um, we've heard some weird stories. We've heard some wonderful stories. We've had some emotional stories. So Louis, what's your What the Health Tech moment that you'd like to share? So I spent a long time thinking about what is my <laughs> What the Health Tech moment? I think I even sent you an email going, I don't know if I have one. And one struck me a few days ago. I realized what my first ever experience of health tech was. And it was my great grandmother, who's no longer with us, um, it was her 95th birthday, um, and I would have been about six or seven. And my mother, bless her, who is lovely and is a living legend, <laughs> but in this moment, she made a misstep and decided to put 95 individual candles on a cake. Wow. So she didn't get a nine and a five. <laughs> she got 95 individual single candles. She, <laughs> she set fire to them. And of course, all the wax melted, the cake and then the table caught and flames <laughs> and then my great nan so we're talking what would be 90 1994 maybe mm. she had one of those little red buttons and i distinctly remember my grandmother not framing it but my great grandmother not framing it very well and going help my granddaughter has tried to set the house on fire <laughs> which clearly is not what was happening she was trying to celebrate a birthday um but yeah so my first ever experience of health day was thinking 
at the time, the Power Ranger was a big thing. I was like, my great nan has like this Power Ranger button. <laughs> like she presses it and she can like speak to me, which is amazing. <laughs> so, you know, that was my first ever um, introduction to health tech. It was also the first time I ever nearly got burnt alive. Um, <laughs> hopefully the last. Yeah, yeah hopefully the last, yeah, touch wood. Um, yeah, so that was my health tech moment. My great nana on her 95th birthday, um, using her little red button to call for help. Before you go, we have to ask you, now I'm checking here, we have to ask you, what is your health tech moment? So um, the guys who normally run the podcast say they normally ask a question about what's your health tech moment, what's your weird, your wacky story? Have you got one, Helen? I have. Okay, so... I thought about this long and hard as I was driving here today, um, and I am going to share this. It's quite funny, uh, but actually really poignant. Okay, so I joined, as I said, Exemplar five years ago, and at the time uh, I had a great CEO called John, uh, quite a wacky guy, really, you know, quite entrepreneurial, full of life, etc., etc. And we have a, um, and we still have exactly the same council. We have a service user council, and. Um, the council meetings are amazing. Uh, and this was pre-COVID. So every one of our council meetings have always been pre-COVID, face-to-face. So we would have a group of 25 service users that have been um, nominated as the service user ambassador for their service. And we would have a venue and they'd come to the venue and we took and we'd listen to them. So it's around the executive team listening to the service users and then trying to make changes or adapt something at their request and what they wanted. So, and they are so lovely and we have an, a, a, a very different bunch of um, service user ambassadors. But uh, one particular guy called Chris, quite a vocal man who is always championing our staff wanting. So every time you go to a council meeting, you talk about staff pay for example really a champion for the staff you don't pay them enough so but chris would always have a slot because chris had a lot had and still has a lot to say uh so this particular uh month it wasn't my turn to go so we take it in turns and also depending on the themes and topics that go onto the agenda one of us would be allocated or two of us to go but this particular time it was john so off john goes to the services council meeting and uh, as always chris has his slot and the first and 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 no it was and it is normally the same he he asks and talks about the same things which usually about the staff so john had obviously gone prepared to talk about the fact that salaries were going up minimum wage going up blah 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 and so it got to chris and chris said john i need you to help me have sex (laughs) (laughs) which completely and utterly floored john who would it was never never speechless about anything but he actually stood there i'm told and said chris I'll send Helen Baxendale <laughs> next time and she'll sort this out. <laughs> so, and this story goes, has been told many times that he just didn't know what to say and said he was going to send me to sort it out. So he came back and said, he said this. And I said, okay, what did you say? And he said, I told him you'd sort it out. <laughs> and I was like, John, that wasn't the right answer. He said, I know, but I didn't know what to say. So... It's a funny story, but actually it made me sit and really think about things. At the end of each episode, we ask everyone to describe their what the health tech moment, 
So we'd like to hear your weird and wonderful stories that you've experienced in the health and social care industry. So I was wondering if you could just maybe share one of those stories with us if you've got any. Yeah. So we've got, it kind of links to, well, it does link to to our services that, that we run. So um, we had, uh, we had an, in, it's a happy ending. I start off by saying it's a happy ending. So we, we had a, a, a patient who was seen by our home visiting service, um, an 85-year-old gentleman who hadn't been feeling particularly well. Um, the home visiting service went in to see him and they weren't particularly happy with what he was, uh, you know, with his his vital signs and how he was looking and actually recommended that he needed to be seen up in the urgent treatment centre um, up at St. Peter's. At the time this happened, and it was, you know, about 18 months ago, um, the ambulance service wait times were absolutely atrocious uh, for calls. And the family lived quite close to St. Peter's. So in fact, they opted to take him up to the urgent treatment centre themselves. He turned up in the urgent treatment centre and immediately collapsed in cardiac arrest as soon as he walked in the door. Our staff were able to resuscitate him. He went into hospital and obviously stayed some time. But as a result of being seen by the home visiting service, coming in and being treated, at the urgent treatment centre so quickly and promptly, um, he survived and he went home to spend Christmas with his family. We'd like to say a big thank you to all of our guests who have appeared on the podcast this year and an even bigger thank you to everybody that's listened. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you do get your podcasts. And if you've got any questions for us or our guests, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com. We'd like to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and we'll see you all in 2024.